If you would please take out your copies of God's Word and turn with me to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. We'll be looking at a comparatively smaller passage of Scripture, uh, but it is still so packed with wonderful things out of the law, out of Jesus' words, and we are so grateful to be able to look at them today. So again, we'll be in Luke chapter 16, we'll be looking at verses 14 through 17 today. Luke chapter 16, starting in verse 14. Listen carefully, because this is Jesus' words. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Let us go to our God once more and ask for prayer uh, or ask for help as we understand this text today. Oh, Jesus, we do thank you for this passage that you've given to us today. I pray that we would listen to it carefully. I pray that I would preach it accurately and that we would be edified by it. It's in Jesus' name that we ask these things. Amen. When it comes to looking at the world and the people in it, we tend to divide people up into two categories, or at least one sort of division of two categories at least. And it would be the people who see the world as the glass is half full, and those who see it as half empty, the optimists and pessimists of this world. And it's amazing how differently two people can look at the same situation depending on how they are inclined and how some will seem to strain to find something wrong with an otherwise wonderful situation. And those who manage to pull out, of the, pull out even the smallest of silver linings in the darkest of circumstances. Now, no matter who you are, almost no matter who you are, there's one area of life that we are all optimists on, and that all of us see the glass as half full, at least. And that's in the estimation of our own character, the estimation of our own life. It's really easy that when we can look at our sins and we can find the silver lining. When we look at our misdoings and we can say that they aren't as bad as they look. Or at least they wouldn't be as bad if such and such hadn't happened or if so and so hadn't come along. We are very good in the way that we even describe our sins. We don't try to call them sins. We like to call them mistakes, errors in judgment, slip-ups, or we put the action in the passive tense, lies were told or mistakes were made. We try to distance ourselves from it. We could say that this is just the way that we talk, but I think we can all hear in these words and turns of phrase a subtle attempt at self-justifying, self-justification, where we try to show ourselves as not being bad or at least not being that bad, 
using our inner lawyer inside of us to convince the court of our conscience that we are not guilty. And in fact, all things considered that we might actually be pretty good. And we can bolster this judgment by surrounding ourselves with people that we deem worse than ourselves. People whose sin is outward and easy to spot. But the problem is, even though we might look good in comparison to others, our fellow human beings are not going to be our judge in the end. The final judgment is not trial by a jury of your peers, but it is the righteous judge, the only judge, and the one who can see into our heart. The one that we read in our Old Testament passage who does not look on the outside, but who sees even to the inside, very unlike how we are. And all those excuses and rationalizations and self-justifications that we've tried to convince ourselves with over the years will fall to pieces. Our entire life is lived before the face of God, both the good and the bad. It's a Latin phrase that I've used for our sermon title this morning that captures this as Coram Deo, before the face of God. That is where we all are. But today, what I want us to do is to look at that concept, to appropriately tremble, but then to see how Christ has delivered us from this. Trying to do self-justification on ourselves, if we're really honest, is very hard work. Because it's constant work, isn't it? To try to convince ourselves that those things that we said that weren't honest were just exaggerations or shadings of the truth. Or those words that we said to our spouse were probably a long time in coming. Or just speaking the truth. Perhaps not in love, but speaking the truth. We can get off that hamster wheel today. Today we're going to see how Jesus fills our glass with his living water. How Jesus fills us with his goodness so that the self-justification can stop. And we can rest in the real justification that Christ has earned for us. That's what we're going to look at today. And then our usual two points that you can see in your outline has been tucked into your bulletin for you. Our first point today is that our standards of justification are the opposite of God's. Our standards of justification are the opposite of God's. And secondly, that Christ has come to bring us good news and guidance. Christ has come to bring us good news and guidance. So let's begin looking at our passage today here in verse 14, where we find the Pharisees, the poster children of self-justification. They've been listening in on what Jesus has been teaching. If you remember back from last week, we looked at the parable of the shrewd steward, the one who found himself in a tight position of being let go from, from his job and has figured out a way to ingratiate himself amongst the people in his town so that when he's fired, he'll still be able to have a place to go where there's food and a couch at least. And he, Jesus drew the application of that teaching of as shrewd as this steward was, we should be just as wise and as careful in the way that we use our finances for the good of God's kingdom, investing it into something that is lasting far beyond ourselves. Now, the Pharisees have been listening into all of this. They've been hearing that Jesus saying, you can't serve God and mammon, and that 
It's not about hoarding gold, but spreading the gospel. So now we're about to hear the Pharisees' nuanced and biblical argument against Jesus. Well, never mind. Actually, all they do is ridicule him. They mock him. It shows that the other side has no argument at all, and all they can do is ridicule. The idea that this, is, that this word puts is that the Pharisees are rolling their eyes or turning up their noses at what Jesus is teaching here about money. So why do they do this? Well, the scriptures tell us that the Pharisees who were lovers of money, they were greedy. The Sadducees, the other branch of the religious order at the time, were a very wealthy people. And it's likely the Pharisees were as well. They had amassed a lot of wealth and were not very keen on giving it away or spending it for the kingdom. In fact, at the time, they had thought that someone who had a lot of money in their bank account, that that was the clearest evidence that God had blessed them. And that if you were financially well off, that you were well off in God's book too. God must like you because you are wealthy. Now, it might be that the Pharisees have a point. If we were to look back in the scriptures, and turn with me, if you will, to 1 Kings chapter 3. Sometimes it is that the Lord will bless with wealth. As we see the account of Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 3, starting in verse 9. Solomon has been appointed to be king, and God has given him the opportunity to ask of whatever he wants. And here Solomon picks up in verse 9. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this your great people? It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all of your days. Here, this was an evidence that God had blessed his king with riches. In fact, if we, were, if we had time, we could look at 1 Kings chapter 10, where all of those riches were described. And they had the queen of Sheba stopping by, either coming all the way from the end of Arabia or from the Ethiopian nation to come in here and see what she had heard about Solomon. And behold, it seems like he had twice as much as she was, as was described to her. This was an evidence that God had blessed with wealth, and sometimes he still does today. But that is not every time. Just because someone is wealthy does not mean that they have God's blessing. Sometimes it is, but it's not a given. And in fact, in this case, it was just the opposite. Look with me in verse 15 as Jesus continues. Jesus says, and he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. 
See, Jesus gets to the heart of the matter, which as we know, popular phrase is the matter of the heart. That the Pharisees thought that they were fine with God because they had all of these exterior markers of religion. They were greedy in their hearts, but they thought they could hide that behind their tithe check. In fact, they tithed so deeply, they followed the law down to its absolute letter, down to if their herb garden produced ten leaves of basil, they would take one of those leaves with them to the temple and would give it to the work of God. That was something that was required, and they followed it to the exact and no more. And that's where the heart was revealed. Oh, I'll do exactly what God tells me to do, but I'm not going to be happy about it. And he's sure not getting anything more than what he's asked. Man's got to live, doesn't he? I need my nine other basil leaves. Can't let more go. And that's they thought God was pleased with, but it wasn't. So what does God want? If he is not fooled by external religion, and he never has been and never will be, what is it that he looks for? Turn with me again in your Bibles to Psalm 51. We mentioned this in Sunday school. But in Psalm 51, David is giving his prayer of repentance for his adultery. And look what he says to the Lord here in verse 16 of Psalm 51. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. In other words, a heart that knows how much it needs God. If we come to our church services as they came to their temples and saying, we're going to bring these things to God because this is what God needs. Instead of saying, this is what I need to bring to God because this is what I need. Need to sacrifice of my income because I need to be reminded that my dependence is not on my job, but is on my Lord. I need to have that greedy heart be dealt with. It's not about play acting. If all we're doing when we offer up sacrifices is offer them with a, with a distant heart, and all we would be doing is offering up a burned animal. If we put our tithe check into the plate without putting our heart with it, then all we're doing is offering up paper. The Lord doesn't need your money. The Lord wants your heart. That's what he's after. Anything less is not worship. It's a lie. And God is actually disgusted by it. As we see here in the next part, the second half of verse 15, for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The Pharisees were lovers of money and did all of this looking very good. Everyone who would have looked at those Pharisees at the outside would have pointed to them as the example of this is what a proper worshiper of God looks like, is the Pharisee. Would have been admired in the streets. 
That's why they wore those long robes, because they liked the praise that came with it. But all of that was just external. And God saw their love of money and was disgusted by it. That's what it means by abomination. It's supposed to be a, another word for a foul odor or a stink. I remember uh, right before my wife and I were first married, we moved to a new house in Bruton. And we noticed when we first came in that there was a faint odor. Uh, but we were assured that it was because it was the previous owner's dogs and that this smell would be taken care of once we were moving in. So I thought, fine. So we did. A few weeks later, came back, and there was still that subtle smell that became less and less subtle. It became more and more noticeable and began to smell more like something had died in the wall. Unfortunately, I, being around this abomination, began to take on its likeness and came to my first few weeks of work, and I couldn't understand why no one would stay in my office with me. I was an abomination to the sight of those who were around me, or not to the sight or to the nose. I remember once I came home to visit my fiance at the time in Birmingham. We hadn't been married yet, and I was rather discouraged because we couldn't find the source of this smell, but it was ever-present. And I remember I flopped down onto the couch, and I said, honey, do I smell like a dead animal? And my wife, or fiance at the time, dutifully lied to me. And said, no, you don't. I found out this week in my sermon preparation that she was, in fact, lying to me. <laughs> and I did. We later discovered it was a stagnant water that was in the fridge. Uh, there was an area that condenses water. And then the pail had just stayed there and stagnated for months. So check that if you have a bad fridge. Um, the things you learn in a sermon, eh? Well, with all of these things, though... As horrible as that was to me, and it was, for three solid weeks I looked for that smell before I finally found it, I was very grateful to be rid of it. I didn't want that fridge anywhere close to my house after that. I wanted it gone and destroyed. And it's the same thing with God. And the terrifying thing is, is that we can do things that are a stink to God and have men applaud us as we do it. It's a very unreliable gauge, other people. Because we, in our natural state, love the things that God hates. We love getting ahead. We love making ourselves prominent. We love worshiping these other, anything other than God. All of those things God despises. But they come so naturally to us that when someone excels in one of those areas, we say, good job. We look at someone who will kill themselves in the office to get some extra money and we applaud them as being ambitious. We look at those that are harsh to their families as those that finally take control and get what's theirs. We see this happening in our own culture today, don't we? Applauding those things that God hates. Abortion breaking up of marriages or redefining them entirely, hatred of one another. We have to get a hold of how God sees those things. We have to understand where they're coming from. And the really terrifying thing, if 
for those of us that have just been installed into leadership roles in this church and for myself and for those that are active in the church, this can happen in the church too. That we can exalt those things that God hates. Reminded of one story is the man by the name of Costi Hinn. You might not know that name, Costi Hinn, but I'll bet you know his uncle. His name is Benny Hinn. The, if you don't know who he is, he is an internationally known false teacher who has made his millions by preaching a health and wealth and prosperity gospel. His nephew, Costi, was involved in the ministry. And as near as he could tell, his uncle was right about everything. Because Costi drove luxury SUVs, had $20,000 watches in his locker at his baseball team. And jetted around on private jets to stay in some of the nicest hotels on the planet. As near as he could tell, they were blessed. They had the money. So doesn't God love them? Isn't, aren't they doing what is right? All this began to change when he had a baseball coach who was a Christian. And who told them that whether they won or lost that game, that God was still in control. And that was in control of their winnings and their losses. And this struck Costi as odd because he thought that life was all about a victorious living. Why would God ever ordain someone to lose? And he wrote it off and was saying, it's like, well, I'm the one with the watches and the cars and the jets. So I guess I'll listen to me instead of the coach. But it planted that seed. Years later, when his girlfriend who became his wife later was in, in conflict with the rest of his family. And couldn't see how their theology squared with the rest of Scripture. Costi began to read himself and began to see that the apostles did not live victorious lives as he and his uncle would have defined it. He began to see that that ministry and this so-called gospel he was proclaiming was false. And left at great cost to himself. Had to leave behind all the money and the place in his family and is now preaching the gospel faithfully. But all the time, before that, men were applauding. And it's really hard to hear the word of God over the sound of applause. It's hard to listen closely to the words of Jesus when other people are drowning out, especially when they're saying things that we want to hear. They're saying, good job, you don't have anything to worry about. But all these things can be an abomination. Now, this seems rather distant so far. I mean, yes, we've talked about the nation, and yes, we've talked about the false gospels of this world. But are we, Norwood Presbyterians, in danger of abominations to God? We would think that we would be safe from that, but it doesn't have to be high-handed sins to be abominations. It doesn't have to be false gospels. In fact, one of my favorite common uh, scholars, his name is Philip Reich, and he put it this way. An abomination is anything that is disgusting to God. Many Christians think of an abomination as an evil deed committed by unrepentant sinners, like an act of terrorism violence, for example, or abortion or homosexual sin. But what Jesus calls an abomination in Luke 16 is the love of money, especially when it has a corrupting influence on people who belong to the community of faith. 
Is there anything more disgusting to God than people who claim to follow Jesus but serve themselves with what they have instead of serving him? But by its very nature, this abomination will only be found inside the church, never outside of it. But if all it takes to be guilty of abominable sin is to love a little money, then what hope do we have of salvation? Oh, surely it's not that bad, right? could almost begin to hear, I know I do, in my own heart, they suffer, the self-justification begin to rise up and find out maybe there's some way out of this. But Riken has us there as well. He continues. The Pharisees saw their money was a sign of God's favor that proved their godliness. We may try to justify ourselves in other ways. We may justify ourselves by measuring our amount of spiritual activity, by letting people know how much we're doing for God and how much it's costing us to do it. We may justify ourselves by refusing to confess our sins, secretly struggling and often failing in our fight against temptation because we are too proud to admit that we are sinners too. Or we may justify ourselves by being proud of our church or denomination as if we could be saved simply by our ecclesiastical affiliation. We may do it by pretending to be something on the outside that is nearly the opposite of what we are on the inside. Well, this is rather searching, isn't it? What are we supposed to do? This is as far as the law can take us. When we look at God's standards, this is as far as we can go to see that we fail. Definitely internally, if not externally. Definitely breaking the spirit of the law, if not the letter. But Jesus is here to show us something different. And thankfully, the text doesn't end here. Look at verse 16. Jesus says, The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. Here, what Jesus is speaking of is this timeline of redemptive history. God's story being laid out. The law and the prophets, another way of saying the Old Testament, has been going up until John, John the Baptist. Meaning that all through the Old Testament, God has been saying there is one coming. All of this has been pointing to when the kings who rose and were so powerful and led their nations well, but they fell. It was meant to point to a king who would not fall. The prophets who would speak the word to the people pointed to the ultimate prophet who would bring the ultimate expression of God in his life. And that is Christ. All of this was to point to one prophet, priest, and king, the true Israelite, the savior of the world. And it's been a long, long waiting period. This is what Jesus is saying, that there is good news of the kingdom that's being preached. Good news that God has come to rescue the captive and to set the sinner free. But how do the people react to it? The end of verse 16 says, and everyone forces his way into it. Have 
different phrases depending on what translation you're reading. And even if you're reading in the ESV, you might see a little number uh, next to the word that points to the fact that this has a, another way we could translate this, which is, um, or everyone is forcefully urged into it. Um, without getting too technical, I think it's that translation that works the best. If you would like to have, uh, if you'd like to talk to me afterward as to why I, I think that and bring all of your Greek verb tense questions with you, I'll be happy to have that discussion. Uh, but to move on from, for, for now, I think that that's the passage here. That the sense that the law and the prophets have been pointing to this good news that's coming. And now everyone is urged to come in. The kingdom has arrived. Come join us. Be a part of what this has been promised. And this invitation is to everyone. Not to stand outside the kingdom and try to justify ourselves as to why we're good enough to come into the kingdom. No. It's to look at the law and see that none of us are worthy of that kingdom. But yet we're invited anyway. Not because God grades on a curve. He doesn't. It's perfection. But Christ has achieved it. The law has pointed to the one who would fulfill it completely. Jesus filled every single command that's in this part of the book. And did it for us. So that we might go free. He fulfilled all of its requirements. And absorbed all of its punishments too. In Galatians chapter 3 verse 13. It tells us that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. By becoming a curse for us. Not only has he fulfilled all of the law's requirements. But he's taken all the law's penalties as well. God does not clear the sinner, but he justifies the sinner. How? Because Jesus came and took all of the, if we could put it in our modern judicial context, if we have been declared guilty of something and have a fine, if someone else comes and pays that fine, that crime is gone. That's what Christ does. When he came and he lived a life, he was doing everything that we were supposed to do. And then died the death that we were supposed to die. So if that's true. And it is. Gloriously. We don't have to settle for our own abilities to try to make our sin look better. If God has truly paid for it all in his son Jesus. We can be honest with it. And we can say yes that was a sin. Yes, I did speak harshly to my wife. Yes, I did speak harshly to my children. Yes, I have lusted after that woman. Yes, I did do those sorts of things. Not to be proud of the sin, but to glory in the Savior who would actually deliver it from us. We don't have to try to polish it up to make it look better. Christ can take it away. So it's not before God anymore. That life that we live before the face of God If we put our faith in Christ, trust in him and repent of our sins, when when God looks at our life, he sees his son. Even in that moment of your disobedience, he sees Jesus work for you and says, it's applied. That righteousness that Christ has made, it can be applied to your life. 
so we can stop with the self-justification. It doesn't work anyway. It's exhausting when we can run to the justification that Christ has given to us. So then where do we go from here? If we say, okay, if Christ has fulfilled all the law, he's taken all the law's penalty, I can be seen as not only not sinful, but I can be seen as perfectly righteous before the face of God. Then what's the point of the rest of the book? Can I not just go and live my life? Well, here is, continues here into verse 17. It says, but it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. The law doesn't go away. But our reaction to it can change. Instead of seeing the law as something that is here to execute us, it is something now that we can see as something to guide us. We've been delivered from the penalty. So now we can live in the joy that he has set out. The law is a reflection of God's character. The reason why the Ten Commandments say don't lie, don't steal is because God is honest. The reason why it says not to commit adultery is because God is faithful to his bride. So we should be faithful to ours. It's bringing our life to be like his own. And for our character to reflect his character in our life. You say, it's like, okay, well, I understand that. I get the Ten Commandments, but what about all the stuff about the those clothing things and the, the dietary laws, are all those things still in effect too? Well, not in the same way that they were then. We can see in the New Testament how those have been changed. But in principle, all of those things are still here. It's not to say we have to worry about whether or what material that our clothing is made of. But what that tells us is that God cares about our clothing. God cares about what we eat. God cares about what we say and how we treat members of our household. What this law does can actually be summarized in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Saying that the law still applies is not to make our life burdensome, but is instead supposed to infuse our life with absolute meaning. Every part of your life is significant. Every part of your life God cares about. And you have an area of responsibility to him in your relationships, in the way that you treat your body, in the way that you treat your neighbor, in the way that you treat everything is significant. And he has a guidance for you on that. Because remember, left to ourselves... We exalt that which is abominable. And that which is abominable is a lie. It might start out well at first, but in the end, it's always going to be disastrous. It's like the way that they used to make um, antifreeze for cars. In times past, it used to be a sweet-tasting liquid. It's since changed. But for those that would have consumed it, it would have seemed sweet at first, but at the end thereof is destruction. That's what the law prevents us from doing. We look into his word. We can see what God sees as abomination and what he exalts. 
and can live a life that exalts him and that he is pleased with. So what's our takeaway from all of this? How do we sum up all that we've just talked about? Well, the first is that we can rest. We can get off the hamster wheel of trying to make ourselves better or make ourselves look better than we are. We can stop the dishonesty. We can stop the hiding and be real with ourselves and with each other. I'm your pastor, but I'm still in the middle of my sanctification too. I still sin and I still need a savior and you still sin and you still need a savior. And when we realize that, that's when we can live a life that's pleasing to God. A life that is a broken and contrite heart. Christ is our justification. Christ is the reason why we are going to heaven and nothing else. But that doesn't mean that God has left us to twiddle our thumbs until eternity. He's also given us a portrait of what a transformed life looks like. He's not, he's not left it up to us to improvise or to figure it out. But he's given us a portrait of a transformation that goes all the way down to the heart. A life that looks like Christ's. It will be a process that will never be done in this life. And it will be accompanied by millions of failures. But it lays out what a blessed life looks like. A life that is truly rich. It's a life that's given to Christ. What a guide and friend. Let us pray. Oh Jesus, we do thank you for the ways that you are continuing to work in our lives. I pray that we would not spend our days, our hours, our lives trying to make ourselves appear something that we're not. When we can rest in something that you offer to us, you can offer us a new identity, a new disposition before your face, that we can be identified with Christ and not with the sins that are so easily beset us. Help us rest in that. Help us live in the life that you have given to us and help us be grateful for the forgiveness that you've granted to us each and every day. So in Jesus' name, I ask these things, amen.